0: Subscribe and rate it Five stars Bigfoot and on The greatest podcast Wherever you're listening or watching Remember always keep it squatchy Yeah And now your hosts, Cliff Berkman and James Bobo Fay. Ladies and gentlemen, from Finding Bigfoot, please make some noise for Cliff Berkman, Matt Moneymaker, and Renee Holland yeah.
1: It's so good to see all these faces. It's like
2: the town hall, right? Now. It's the and,
1: best and town hall. <laughs> you guys are awesome. I seriously, this is this is great. You guys, this is my first Bigfoot convention ever. Um, you know, aside from finding Bigfoot, I was still uh, you know working with uh, all of my nerdy scientist friends and doing some TED talks and some academic conventions. But Cliff and Bobo kept nagging me about all the kids and families, so it's glad to finally be here. So, uh, everybody's been so nice to me. Thank you guys all so much. It's great
3: to be here. Good. Well, I'm Matt Moneymaker. And as they said, I was on the Finding Bigfoot show, as I'm sure some of you know. And uh, I, I started a group called the BFRO Uh, During the four years while I was in Ohio And uh, um, After that I think I came down to uh, Kentucky a couple of times uh, During that year But I came back many more times After I had actually moved back to California Was out a few times Before we did the show And then when we did the show We were in Kentucky a few more times Uh, So uh, yeah I've had uh, a lot of experience in uh, a handful of parts of Ohio, of of Kentucky, and uh, I used to fly into Lexington when I would go up to. For those of you who heard my panel thing about the Kentucky footage, uh, it was funny because I was coming into Lexington, flying into Lexington when I would go up there. Anyway, so uh, that's uh, my connection to this place, and uh, I'm, I'm, And this is Cliff. <laughs>
4: I do these things all the time it seems that every at least half the audience here is familiar to me and that's only because I can't remember the other 30% of you I see you guys all the time because this is one of my jobs that I do and it's a pleasure to travel the country and see so many familiar faces and so many smiles um, what, what really touches me are realizing that you know you've invited us the team into your family's living room every week for years for almost a decade and it is so kind and, and you guys are so gracious and it's lovely to be back at probably my favorite event? It's hard to say because there are so many good ones, but, God, CryptidCon is just amazing, I would say. The variety of high-caliber guests, um, it, it just blows everything away. Tom Shea, of course, us, uh, Charlie Raymond, I can go down... Uh, Seth Relove, Adam Davies, you just go down the list. There's so many people here that uh, I'm not only privileged to call colleagues, but also friends. So I hope if you don't realize how lucky you are to be here, let me tell you, believe me, (laughs) it it is a fantastic event. And thank you very much for all your support, not only for us as individuals and as a team, um, but for the subject in general, the subject in general. So thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to answering whatever questions or whatever the heck Matt has, uh, uh, Pruitt here has in store for us. I don't know. He's nuts. We'll see. You,
1: you wanna, uh, I guess I should uh, do some etiquette. Again, it's my first convention. Be gentle. Um, a, a proper introduction to me. I'm Renee Holland, uh, the skeptical scientist, the Renee Sayer from the team of Finding Bigfoot. <laughs> Um, you know, I just want to say a moment that we know that Bobo couldn't make it. He's he's working on a project down there in Southern Oregon, and I've kind of half mad at him because I thought it was going to be all four of us. So we're gonna, I'll, I'll be giving him a hard time because I know you're all telling him how much you, you miss him here, but I'll I'll be I'll be will be, I'll be him for you. But I just have to say everything that Cliff and Matt were speaking to. I have missed being out and meeting the people in the community. I, I, that's all I can say, you guys. Especially COVID, you know, you we were all being separated. It's so good to see you all, and I am stoked to be getting some more questions. Because I know a lot of you have stopped by and have seen me already, but there's a lot I haven't seen yet. So, bring it on. I'll tell you what.
3: I'm going to answer one question that I know we're going to get. We might as well answer that right off the bat is what's the plan for new episodes in the future. And the the truth is we don't, we haven't been told about any plans for any new episodes. We know that they'll want to do a special with us, uh, every so often. Uh, but, uh, uh, right now, uh, under the umbrella of the Discovery Network, is the Travel Channel, and they have a Bigfoot show called Expedition Bigfoot. So they're kind of they're they're doing that for now. That's their their Bigfoot show for now. And uh, so uh, I think we, Cliff, both Cliff and I, have done spots on other shows, uh, always about Bigfoot stuff. Usually in the in the course of like. A show that's general paranormal where they do different kinds of topics and if they do a Bigfoot topic, they'll get him or I. Although recently Travel Channel was uh, uh, doing a, sh- a Bigfoot, uh, they had a show and they needed a Bigfoot person and then they pulled in somebody from Expedition Bigfoot. And I'm like, okay, sure. Go ahead. <clears throat> Bring in one of those guys, those Johnny-come-latelys who don't know nothing. That's cool. <laughs> if you want that but uh but yeah we we're doing stuff here and there and uh i i i'm happy to be organizing uh bfro expeditions in different parts of the country and they you know we've got already one scheduled for ohio uh for next year and i'm sure there will be one in kentucky and uh so in that sense i was doing that before we did the tv show and we're doing it afterwards but you know i'll be doing these uh uh, be going to the same places that Cliff is going to. Probably not as frequently as you, but I'll be doing it at some point. So, anyway, I wanted to proactively answer that question because I knew that that would be like among the questions that would come up.
1: It, it, it's so hard. They're always wanting us to get the band back together. You guys have to realize I, I, I I'm just super bold here. We needed that downtime. I needed that full year off to recharge. And it's like getting you know, the four of us to coordinate a schedule is not easy. He's got a project going on right now. I have different stuff going on. These guys are busy. And it's true. This is one thing I say. Even if there wasn't a show Finding Bigfoot, those three would be running around the woods doing what they do all the time anyway. So, so it's, uh, it's good to be on a stage, mission one. But I'm the drummer, just for the record. I'm the drummer. Yeah.
0: I'm Ringo. Yeah, I think think they wanted to do a little bit of, like, a a past, present, future discussion, and then we'll open up to audience questions. One of the things that I've always found interesting that I think the audience might find interesting that I've not heard a lot of discussion about is, like, Matt, you had actually had – there were offers coming in prior to Animal Planet, and, you know, there were things that were filmed that were maybe sizzle reels here and there, and it always seemed like you had a pretty strong vision of what you wanted, enough such that you knew that those other offers weren't quite – uh, you know, the right ones to take and to commit to. So maybe the audience would be interested in hearing about that process and what it was about Animal Planet in that series that clearly was the right choice, right? It ran for a very long time, all these people are here, it's still in reruns, et cetera. So do you, do you remember that process and what it was about that opportunity that shone brighter than the other ones?
3: I mean, I'll tell you about the previous series I did. There was a series that I shot in 2003 um, and it went on for a year, and it was kind of the precursor to Finding Bigfoot. It was called Mysterious Encounters with uh, Autumn
1: Williams. That great, that was fun, that, show was that, show was fun. Yeah. that was
3: great. And it was, if you've seen that show, you'd notice it was very similar to Finding Bigfoot. And there was a lead, uh, her name was Autumn Williams, and it ran for about a year, and it was a lot of pressure on her, because she was kind of the lead figure, and these, these shows are, you know, working on these shows, it's pretty grueling. I mean, you're, because you're up all night long, and then the next day you're working, and, and it can burn you out. And so then if you have the, uh, the which we didn't have to endure, which would, none of, none of the four of us was like the person, the focal person of the show. So none of the four of us had to deal with that psychological pressure of like, it's all about one person. Uh, but it was that case with her, and uh, it's difficult to to appreciate what that's like when you're the lead person uh, and the show is all about you, uh, and because you, you know that this is like your big chance, and you want to present yourself and the subject a particular way, and you want to be respected, uh, and especially if you're a female lead and you're uh, you know, a, a young, attractive woman like, like her, which they wanted to play that up a lot, and of course she wants to be presented as more respectable and not just cheesecake, and so that was a constant argument there, uh, and it just, it was very frustrating for her. Oh and it was a learning experience for me but I I got to enjoy like the squatching without having I was in the show too and you could see me in the show I was kind of like her assistant uh, but after a year of it she just said you know between just the just the the exhaustion of it physical exhaustion and emotional exhaustion she just said there's no way she's going to go on and do another one but it was a very popular show while it was on we went to a lot of different places across the country uh, in the well I mean we went to in the course of one year we I think we did 13 episodes uh, and we there was a lot of uh, a lot of search technique things that that, uh, that we got to use there that I think we carried over to finding Bigfoot or or we decided we weren't going to use because I had already tried it and said this will work and that won't work or, or this is going to be a logistical nightmare uh, and uh, yeah but that was good and it was during the filming of that show, uh, that uh, some people came up to me and said, uh, uh, you know, these expeditions that you guys at the BFRO do, they say, you know, we would love to attend one and we pay money to go on one, etc." And they were telling me how much money they pay, and I was just like, well, I think that could work out if there was enough people who, who were willing to attend one. Because before that, it was just people in the group. We'd meet, we'd go together, we'd go places. Um, and so that was really helped really start the, the VFR expeditions, which I ran myself and, and went to all of them uh, every month or and, and in the summertime, a couple of month, times a month uh, all over the country. And so when we heard that, uh, and, and then during the course of that, another guy, a guy came to me and said, hey, listen, I, can, you know, I wanna help you get another show. So I was working with uh, some producers, uh, guys in Hollywood, who, who, would want, who were taking me to networks and saying, you know, we want to build a show, a Bigfoot show around this guy, uh, et cetera. And, of course, we'd be going into Fox and HBO and all these different places. And, of course, it, you know, they were just like Bigfoot, you know, what a TV show about? Come on. You know, they just <clears throat> these network people were just silly about it. Uh, I mean, thought the subject was silly. They liked me, but they didn't. They thought the, sh- the subject matter is not something that people that there would be an audience for, uh, and they really believed that. And of course, once Bigfoot big Bigfoot's taken off, that I had like some of those people like contact me, like, wow, it really happened. You know, it was good. Uh, it worked out for you, or people who knew them. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, with Animal Planet finally started looking or wanting to do, we heard they wanted to do a show. Uh, they were looking around for people to be in the show. So we didn't go to we didn't take the idea to Animal Planet. The producers who were who came to me and approached me, uh, they they wanted to they Animal Planet for them and Discovery, that was like cable shows, that was too small time. They thought the budget wouldn't be enough enough for these guys who were to bring me around for them to get good producer fees. And I kept saying, well, why don't we take it to like a Discovery or an Animal Planet? And they're like, no, 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 no. And so eventually I'm just like, you know what guys, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I'm done with this. I, I'm you know, I gonna try and do this on my own. I'll I'm take, you know, if I'm gonna do it, I might take it to places that you guys don't wanna bother with. Animal Planet, then they decided they wanted to do a show. They started looking at initially like at, on YouTube to try to find, they were looking at people who were on YouTube talking about Bigfoot stuff. And I wasn't on YouTube uh and i know the clip neither none of us were on youtube at that point uh but then they started talking to other bigfoot researchers and other bigfoot researchers said they should come and talk to us and they found cliff independently uh and then they found me and it just it all kind of came together from there
1: well i think what the timing on that was is that i think you and Bobo were signed on and there was just they were just, there was like this nine-month process, like, so so Matt, obviously, and then they, and then they had Bobo, and you'd worked with Bobo, you had experienced, and they were just on a cliff, and there was this dance to find, they wanted a woman, yeah and they wanted credentials, somebody, you know, some scientific or degree to have that. I don't know, did they want a skeptic? Yeah. Oh, okay, I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> they, they wanted
3: somebody, a female, skeptic scientist who was in the BFRO.
1: Yeah. So what I I remember is here, since we're at at a panel, I'll give you a little turn here on Matt.
3: Uh Uh-oh. So
1: Matt, who's, you know, this is is circa 2009-2010, and Matt, one day, just wants to be my Facebook friend. And I'm like, where's Matt coming from out of nowhere? Like, squeaky, like, I met Matt because I wanted Bigfoot stories where I did field work. It made me feel close to my dad. Matt and I had probably in person met maybe once, twice at most at this point. Otherwise it was all he would let me log into the database to hear reports of where I was doing field work, which was a couple times a year. I mean it was a I jokingly wink and say we had an online relationship back in the day. So out of the blue facebook request me i'm like what's this about if he was going after my fieldwork photos This and then one day he's like hey renee what are you doing and i'm like i'm going to the doctor's department want to be on a tv show and i'm like well, or what you want to go to alaska and i'm like well it's my favorite place yeah and he's like you're filming this pilot And i'm like no thank you sir i'm a young scientist i didn't want to be connected to that and then the next phone call from you was a few weeks later matt had surreptitiously had the production company and you had um Todd who is the production from the network on the phone call but he's calling in just as Matt he's like just go on with his Matt he was Matt and me again and I was like Matt what part of no do you not freaking understand and I was like hello Renee and I don't realize I'm on this whole group call and that's
3: that's, that's really, uh, for me, was the beginning of the Yeah, and so, yeah, Renee was one of, they had this very strict criteria, and she was one of the people who fit it. And so I kept sending them demos, uh, you know, and it was hard, because I would approach these these women in the group and say, can you put a demo tape together so I could pitch you for a show? And none of them really wanted to do it, including Renee. Yeah. Uh, and so I'd have to talk them into doing it, which is bad because obviously not all of them are going to be on it. So I'd have to convince them to do it. They didn't want to do it, and then knowing that for almost all of them, I'd have to be calling them back saying, "No, they don't like you." <laughs>
2: uh,
3: and so that was tough. Uh, but uh, eventually, you know, I uh, of all of them, I knew Renee was. Uh, was probably the best one. I mean, I knew she could, whatever, I mean, I had to think about the experience with Autumn, how worn out Autumn was after just one year, meant, you know, psychologically and physically. And I just, I told the network, I said, I'm really concerned about that, that we have, you know, one female, three guys. It's going to be, you know, she's not the lead, but it's still going to be all this pressure on her, whoever the female lead is. And I said, of all the women I know, Renee's going to be the one where, you know, she's going to be the last one to get worn out. I mean, the, the, the rest of us will fall apart before she does. Uh, and, uh, I, and so they believe that after a
1: while. I wasn't, I wasn't gray until the show and then they had to start coloring my hair because it was going gray fast being in the car of those three guys. <laughs> <laughs> I joke, I will say this, you know, one thing that meant a lot to me, um, and I think a lot of people, within in the Bigfoot community, I, I still, to this day, I don't, I don't believe it's an undocumented, I won't say discovered, an undocumented by a lot of species, recognized, I think it's somebody, and I love that you guys call it Bigfoot and Beyond Cliff, because to me, Bigfoot is something that is beyond the realm of science, we will just leave it at that, because it's just, but... The beauty of it was there's these three guys who I don't know, and I'm stuck in a cash car traveling the country, the world for that matter, in the cast car. And as these guys are full-on nerds, if there was no finding Bigfoot, those three guys would be doing what they're doing. They still are, right? And there, you know, we would do our filming sessions, and then we'd get to go home and see our families for a week and then back on the road in this grind for 10 years, as you guys know. So we'd get back in the car and in the beginning I you guys they'd, they'd be talking about everything that's going on the big the community and then I'd, I'd be in the back seat and I'd look up from my phone and there'd be this this hesitation for a moment. And it was like what happens in the cast car stays in the cash car. And I remember Cliff looking at me one time when I, I kinda had the, the look of approval like, I'm not gonna say anything, just gonna stay in the cast car. And I think that's when I knew I was accepting. I felt I felt <laughs> I felt that I'd belong, but the skeptic
0: will at least hold the secret and, and that's when i knew i i, I found my Oh okay. excellent absolutely yeah i mean as you know like you said it, it starts out with a free trip to alaska right and exactly. it's like, because most yeah. things that get green lit don't even get made and then most pilots that get shot don't go anywhere and then most things that air don't get renewed and now you've got 10 years behind you with that, so I guess it would have been hard to anticipate that it would have turned into all this, but I, I was to supposed to go point.
1: to grad school. I was all funded to head to Oregon State University. You know, we were shooting a pilot. In fact, Todd Miller said, you know, pilots are a dime a dozen. It's a free trip to Alaska, my favorite place, a little bit of money for a poor college student, you know, and I'll head off to well, I'll go to grad school after that, and then when we filmed it, then I was like, I had to make a lot of phone calls quickly. <clears throat>
3: And and I know, I guess I, I was reluctant a little while ago to even talk about all this stuff because I thought, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff of the show is kind of like, you know, it almost like, I, I, I don't know. I, I would just think it, it kind of, like, dulls the magic of the show. But I guess it is kind of interesting. But one, I guess, one point is about the Alaska thing. I remember the moment when we were there and we had been there for several days and we had been filming scenes for the pilot, and what I, at one point they came to us and they said, okay, they're, they're, they're gonna give you a time slot uh, of like nine o'clock on Monday nights. They're talking about that. And I was, I was so blown away because I'm like, they're already, I mean, we're here in the middle of shooting the pilot. But what happened was they were sending every day from Alaska, they were sending back what are called dailies. And in the TV or film, dailies are whatever they're filming during that day, they're sending back to the studio, and in this case they're sending it back to the network to letting them see kind of the raw footage to, to, to give them an idea of what they're gonna get. And and for them to make decisions on whether or not they want to go forward, so they're making decisions about the pilot while we're f- in the middle of shooting the pilot in Alaska. And so while we're up there, they told us they they had made they saw the dailies from us up there and they just loved it so much. They're like, yeah, they're going to commit you on nine o'clock on Sunday night. And I remember I just I I, I was I was speechless and I was like. Oh my God, they're giving us Sunday night at nine o'clock on Animal Planet? That's, this is, I said, you guys, this is gonna happen. This is gonna be a big deal. Yeah. And it was, but that was the moment we knew when they came and told us that time slot and that they made the decision before we had even, before we had even finished filming the, the damn pilot, just from the dailies. Uh, and then, as it turned out, they, uh, I, can't, I can't remember exactly what the reason was, but they didn't turn that, they had us go back to Alaska later on to the same place and shoot more stuff. Oh,
1: I, I remember, Matt. So we, we shot the pilot in, I want to say May, of, or May? May, June of. Uh, May, June of, okay, June of 2010 is when we shot the pilot. And then we started filming the initials. They're like, okay, the short script, and that's uh, February of 2011, uh, North Carolina. Uh, Georgia, Florida, and then uh, Oregon, Washington, in that order, and then they they needed to have the six, so we needed to have it kind of fit in the format. That's why we went back to Alaska. Hence the branding of putting glasses on me and coloring my hair. That's why I'm wearing the goofy. That's why I'm wearing the goofy hat for that whole um, tea art that goes for Alaska. That's that's why we went back to ble- to
4: to blend it. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. The first episode we actually filmed uh, as as a true season um, in February of 2011 was the North Carolina episode. And I remember Brad Kuhlman, the owner of the production company, like, uh, you know, we're being watched by the owners of the production company at that point. and for good reason, we were uncooperative. But um uh, but I remember like uh, we we were doing a town hall or something like that. I remember Brad comes out of that janky hotel room that we were in, and he says, "Okay, well this, then this, 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 there it is," and he threw his arms up wide. There's the the, the format. There's the format. They were looking. We were actually filming without a really a solid plan, just yep. trying to make things up as we went along. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's we crazy. were
1: doing three to four night investigations a week, and I remember that one. Abalard. RR North Carolina and um Every night we were staying out. I remember 4.44 a.m., we would get back in the hotel room. Three to four night investigations per episode. I mean, this was just like, I, I was like, I'm going to blow up. I mean, this is like insane. This is crazy. It's, it's, un, it's untenable. It was it's
4: grueling. It was truly grueling. Yeah. yeah, yeah until especially we had, that first season.
1: And it was, and then that first season is these guys who had had all their Bigfooting experience that they've done with you know, mysterious encounters and flip on his own. It's now this class of the crew, i.e., I, uh, you know, the film crew following as you're looking for Bigfoot. And let me tell you, that is a show in and of itself, you guys. That is a behind-the-scenes show in and of itself. Um, the power struggles. And then I just, I do remember, you know, the end of season one we're, uh, in Florida, the way, it was, the order that we shot it was different than how it was uh, released and aired. But uh, I just remember uh, Bigfoot and Deer's the beginning of what was going to be season two for us, what was the coming together of Discovery saying there was this compromise. Let us have somebody camp so we can really
4: travel. Yeah, and I hate to burst anybody's bubble, but TV is largely false, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a shallow, yeah. superficial medium at best, yeah. and but we're, we're doing the best to do, we could to do real Bigfoot exactly. stuff, and there's light issues, we don't want lights being shown, and there's noise, and we're, we're going to be quiet, and basically making a TV show is exactly what you don't want to do if you're going Bigfooting, yeah. and it was extraordinarily frustrating for all of us, and we can't. We yelled at them, they yelled at us, we we were extraordinary we very uncooperative and so were they because they needed TV and we needed Bigfoot Um, and it came to a head first season, I'm sorry, first show second season as Renee was saying the McKenzie episode um, basically the network executives had to fly out to the woods of Oregon to calm the Bigfooters down Um, so we would work with these people and that's what and you know and, 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 and the, the animal Planet was 100 percent behind us. The production company, uh, we we met, uh, we we understand exactly what they need. They understood what we needed. We they were very very accommodating to us. Yeah. Um, and it was a fantastic, a fantastic opportunity for us because that's where we got this idea that okay, you're making TV, but you cannot hoax us, you cannot coax us in the lying. And 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 yeah, I can't speak for any other shows because I mean, I know Finding Bigfoot better than anything. Yeah, sure. We didn't. Here's the truth, guys. Secret. We didn't have to take a helicopter to get to the final night investigation spot right that's tv but when it came to bigfoot we never lied we never lied about we could be wrong i'm 100 open to being incorrect but we never lied about stuff that we heard stuff that we saw stuff that we thought um and and, you know other shows I, I, i don't know i mean it doesn't seem like tv's like that to me you know um And and it's because of that meeting, and it's because the accommodation that Animal Planets and Discovery, their parent company, and the production companies, uh, we met them halfway. I was a fifth grade teacher. I understand a good story hook, right? I think we all understand that, and that's cool, and that's part of the fun of watching TV, going on adventures with four nerds, or or three nerds and Bobo. And, um, and, (laughs) And that was part of the thing, that we had to understand how the TV thing a little bit more but they had to understand that and I remember standing up and yelling at Keith Hoffman who would later become a very good friend of mine or executive producer yeah,
1: I'll give him a kidney I mean, that's, the, he's amazing the, crew, the, the production and crew people became our we have a road family yeah. and to this day I don't see these guys for a long time. We go to shoot this special episode that we shot, and it was just like old times right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep the
4: same. I remember standing up and yelling at Keith Hoffman. It's like, I've been big footing for this long, and I will be big footing for the rest of my life. I'm not going to, and your show's going away in four or five years, no matter how successful it is. I am not going to lower our standards for your stupid show. And, and, he's, and he goes, who's asking you to? <laughs> and later, I adore Keith. The he's production
3: company yeah. to...
4: Well, they, they need a TV that's and they whatever and and but we we had a fantastic compromise and we did not compromise the subject which is the most important thing Sasquatches I'm sorry Renee, no, are no. in fact real <laughs> you know they are in fact real I guess, and I they deserve on. I'm going on, they like deserve you. the re- the subject deserves the respect um, that I just don't see a lot of uh, productions giving so whatever that's worth I'm very proud of being on Finding Bigfoot for that reason yeah
1: <laughs> on that matt i'm so glad that you bring that up because there are these two things that i see you know being being the skeptic which is not a cynic being a skeptic which i defend you know i'll get people all the time in the, in the world here oh you guys it wasn't so they didn't think everything's a bigfoot it's about tv they don't see oh no nope, that's it oh that's that they're only going to see what you're reacting and the other thing that i speak to and like cliff said there are a lot of scripted shows and other shows that are doing something else it is written into our contract, cast and crew. Anybody face anything on our expeditions, they're out. And we, it has actually
3: been enacted enforced. force. me, means not us, but the producers so, and the crew and stuff like that. Like yeah. throw a rock because they're tired of waiting around for us, you know.
1: And it actually was enforced. I won't say when, but it was one thing happened. We had it, a ranger was with us at a location, saw that somebody had been making noises while we were out. That person was on a plane home the next day. And that and I, and I believe once. that and I stand by that and that's something I take pride in Surely sure maybe yeah. for trying to help this we weren't aware of but we're out there we're out there doing the real thing we are getting that cause of going yeah, out when... and trying to find that for the people sitting at home in their couch who can't get there and have that experience I mean and, and I stand by that and that's something I'm very proud of
3: yeah I still remember the, the just the kind of faces and looks because <laughs> some times we were going places and if people just bystanders if they were watching what was going on and that'd be Alaska North Carolina they were seeing us all rolling and they just were seeing yelling and screaming and just like oh my god these big loud fights about this and that and and uh, I remember one of them was we were in North Carolina and we just kind of laid down the law and they're like the producers of course they're expected to have control and kind of define what's going on. I mean, that's what they're kind of expected to do. Decide this is going to happen and that's going to happen, etc. And we just kind of, all the crew, I mean, the cast got together and just like, no, 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 you don't understand. We're not doing your show. We're doing our Bigfoot thing and we're letting you film it. So get used to that. And that was just, you know, and we're just like, you know, and and if you don't get used to that, we'll walk. And so then they just kind of you know like uh, I guess nothing else. I guess they we they got to do what we we got to do it that way. And then when we would try to get
1: production members, you know, it's that's why that we had a true road family. These we had you know we had to train them to be Bigfooters along with us. There's roles to be served. You can't just fly into another town, pick up some PAs, and know how they're gonna fit in. And it became a rolling, connection uh, of a, yeah. a tight
3: family. But it was the production company. I mean, for all the the squabbles that we would have along the way, um, it was the production company's idea to do the town hall meeting. And I remember when we were on the conference call, and then it was Casey Brummels who said, okay, one of the things we're gonna do at each one of these places we go, we're gonna do a town hall meeting where we're gonna bring in the witnesses and everything And I remember just saying, yeah! I thought that was the great idea. I just, I knew, I just said, oh, we're really gonna do that? I, because I, I, didn't, I didn't even calculate because all I knew about the production company was that they had done Destination Truth. I mean, this is the production company of Josh Gates. So they had done, and you know, before with Josh it was Destination Truth. And Destination Truth is is maybe not an appropriate name for the kind of thing they do uh, in Destination the show. Destination Entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and so we kept thinking, you know, if you try to make this like Destination Truth, where we are we are not going to go along with that. Um, And and so, but when they said they wanted to do a town hall, I I was just ecstatic because I knew one of the things that that I could help with in that regard is the BFRO database. All the signing reports in there would, would help it so they'd have a whole lot of people that they could contact in every state you know, witnesses, etc., that they could call up and say, hey, come to this town hall meeting. And then on top of that, they could advertise they used Facebook and local radio stations, etc., And they could they could make sure that we had a whole bunch of real good witnesses uh, in and in, you know in, in pretty much any any place that we went. And that's what other T V shows couldn't do. So Expedition Bigfoot could not do a witness based show because they didn't have a big, long database, Uh, and it's because none of those people have been doing Bigfoot stuff for very long. They've kind of like, you know, they only got involved in Bigfoot stuff. I mean, they really got in, those guys got involved in Bigfoot stuff because they got involved with our stuff. We had been doing this stuff so much longer, kind of in the chemistry in the show those, none of those people had ever been working together but we like I knew Renee and I knew Cliff and I knew Bobo and so I think you could tell in the show that we all kind of knew each other before we started doing the show
4: and there's something to be said about uh, um, it, 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 trust, not only between the cast members, but also the production team, and we eventually achieved that, and I think in a very wonderful way, yeah. um, and I think a lot of it with the network was kind of like talking to the production company, because network and production, they know TV, we know Bigfoot, and I think the, the network is going like, hey, you know what? Just, these guys are weird enough. Just go film them, whatever they're doing. It's going to be a great show, you know? <laughs> and just like, yeah, let, let, leave them, let them do their... They're, they're so eccentric. This is going to be great. Don't worry about that. Excellent. Well, we just crossed the 35-minute mark, so I think we're
0: going to open this up, the remainder of this, to audience question and answers for the next uh, half an hour to hour, however long you guys feel like going. So again, this will be on the podcast, so if you want to be heard and say, you know, your name and where you're from, just make sure you articulate into this mic. If you don't mind being on Bigfoot and Beyond, flipping below. Hello, uh, my name is Max. I'm from Frankfurt.
3: We're in Frankfurt oh yeah I think you all were in the we did a last town hall there. Yeah. Uh my
0: question is
4: what was your all's favorite episode to film <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's a hard question you know for, for me it kind of for me, it kinda goes there's actually different ones so it's like I, I think back of some of the favorite people I need to stand out I, and I one, one thing that stands out for me is being in Virginia and having a father come up and he's carrying his two daughters and I realized What our team was doing was me being a little girl with my dad back in the 70s watching In search of and having that special connection with my dad and Bigfoot that we're that next generation. There's those people connections I made in the 10 years across the country. Then I think of like amazing food and there's some that goes on and on. And then I have to think of uh, amazing landscapes. So one of my all-time favorites was I have always wanted to go uh, to Tibet and Bhutan, so when we went to Nepal, I went early, so I spent um, weeks there. So I went early, I went back to Nepal, then I went to Tibet, and then I went to Bhutan, and I came back, and it was interesting that everybody calls it the Yeti, right? But it's actually in Bhutan, it's the Mete. In Tibet, they have all of its names for it. It's a part of their culture. Again, we can see the community of not just the physical uh, pieces that Kirk was talking about, but being a part of culture. that continues across the world by indigenous people. What was amazing to me, one part that on the show, even though I may not believe it's a biological, undocumented species, I believe that there's a, a spirit of or solar or energy, if you will, and our physical body dies that our spirit goes somewhere else. That's the belief of most of the, of the people, the indigenous peoples there. That's never talked about in the show. And I remember when he was mentioning Keith Hoffman, our showrunner, I was like, Keith, they talk about it here, it's part of the culture. Can I reference that? Nope, you're the second. Yeah, That's yeah. on. So I gotta say for me, Nepal was an amazing, was an amazing one. I, and then also, I have to say, being with Bob Gambling down at Willow Creek, riding horseback with Bob down to the site,
3: first time that he's been back there. So those are two things that immediately
2: come
3: back for me. And my answer will be one word, and that
4: is Australia. <laughs> Australia. <laughs> Besides the Gimlin stuff and like all, all the bucket list things, like going to the, the, the Bottle Tree Island Thing from Legend of Boggy Creek and you know all these things I was oh, watching so as many. a kid and everything you know but I started getting really concerned about my, my bucket list um, because it was getting shorter and shorter which I guess means my demise is nigh you know <laughs>
3: okay
4: thank you so much thank you thank you all
2: I'm Layla. I'm originally from Texas. Um, first, I want to say thank you for your authenticity. Uh, meeting you in person and seeing that your personalities and discussions are exactly as you portray them in the show um, cool. is, is great and leads credence to how genuine that all of you are. So thank you for that. And um, my question is, what are each of your individual opinions on the future of research with technology and new videos and new evidence emerging?
3: I mean, there was a big leap forward uh, it, it, when the internet came around. And, uh, and that was a revolution in itself in that we were getting, because, I mean, it, it'd be hard to, I mean, if you're a Bigfoot researcher and, and you're not as old as we are, you wouldn't remember well what it was like before that. Um, and it was, there was, I mean, there's probably, Three times as many people in this room as there were like real you know active Bigfoot researchers, and not even in the field, just people exchanging information. Was maybe a dozen people across the country at most. I mean, we're talking like in the in the mid '80s, uh, and 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 we knew the ball, and we'd get information, but the information like would it would you know sometimes there would be newspaper articles, and you would just hear things through the grapevine. And stoked if you heard about a report that was as recent as two years ago Uh, and um, and then when the internet came along and it allowed us to get reports directly from the witnesses and from all different parts of the country and a whole lot of information that way because it just kept coming in uh, and that was that was a huge revolution and then i think probably the next big big leap forward came uh after the tv show started after finding bigfoot came on because the bigfoot researchers knew there was reports coming from all these different so many different states not all of them but most of them any state that had a you know forests with deer let's say which is almost every state uh has at least i mean do you think except for hawaii can you think of some state that doesn't have some portion that has deer even nevada has parts of it where there's mountains and there's deer um, and so there's habitat for them in almost every one of these states uh, and, and uh, so yes yeah, so we so the bigfoot researchers knew there was reports coming in from everywhere but the public didn't know that then when the TV show came on, we were able to show, we showed that in Mysterious Encounters to a degree, but that was on this Canadian network, outdoor life network, which not everybody had. How many people remember OLN? They used to show the Tour de France bike race, and that was kind of their claim to fame. So OLN, like you would, in some parts of the country, you would be part of the basic cable package and other places nobody had ever heard of OLN. So it didn't really get out. But when our show came on Animal Planet, that was then a big, I think, revelation to a lot of to people around the country. It's like, wow, Bigfoot isn't just in the Pacific Northwest. And then they started to understand the idea that big, there isn't just one bigfoot, you know, which was another kind of thing of the uh, raised the awareness that no, this is not a, a phantom thing that pops up here and there. These are like animals that people see. and sometimes they see more than one. Uh, in, in the same place, but these are animals like other, except they're a lot more rare, and they're uh, they're they're very elusive, and they're very smart, and and so as a consequence, people just see them occasionally, uh, because they're active mainly at night, um, and uh, anyway, so so that was the big leap forward, and I uh, a big leap forward, and I think now probably the next big leap forward is probably going to be a technology related thing based on people have smartphones, so they can, and, and the limitation with smartphones as opposed to the area era where people have camcorders is smartphones don't really zoom in very well. And so many of the signs that people have are not close up, but they're a distance away. So, And people kind of intuitively know that if you're seeing something like that would be on the other side, spotting something on the other side of the freeway here, you wouldn't even bother picking up your phone to try to film it because it's too far away. Um, So phones in and of themselves, they can help you kind of communicate it, but it's only if it's close range and in daylight is a regular smartphone going to help you. But now drones are going to make a difference, and the added thing, which is actually, I brought one, we're gonna use it tonight on the the search when we go out tonight, good thermal cameras are now pretty cheap. When we first started using thermal cameras, remember back then, it was probably like 15 years ago, they would cost like, and for a handheld, fairly good resolution, you know, thermal resolution, uh, uh, thermal, it was like $9,000. And so it was way out of reach for most people But nowadays, a really good therm you can get for just, I mean, we found a way for the VFRO to offer one where we wanted to make, get a really, offer a really high quality one for under $1,000. And so we have that now, and we can offer it because we want a lot of people to have those. And I'll tell you, once you use a thermal imager in the woods at night, you will never go out in the woods without one again. Because it's just like you're because you can't walk. You're not walking around with a spotlight. I mean, unless you're a fool and you really don't want to see one, or you want to scare them all away, you don't use a spotlight. Uh, So you're walking around in the woods in the dark. But you're walking around in the woods in the dark. Everything. It's kind of scary, especially when you're by yourself every little thing you hear you don't know what it is you don't know how big it is etc but you've got a thermal you can look and you can see what it is without shining a light on it because it glow i mean it senses heat so any kind of warm body lights up like a lantern and you can you can spot everything around you and it makes it a whole different experience going out in the woods So the more that you have kind of the average Bigfoot person, the the better thermal gear they have, not only does it give them the capability to record things, but it also gives them the bravery to go out into the dark to try to get close to one of these things, or close enough, get out there where, again, if you're walking around in the woods in the dark, where these things are walking around in the woods in the dark, and they hear you, they'll come close enough to check you out, and then you'll have an opportunity to film them. So the the next step, it's still just like it was in the 60s. It's based on people's ability to get film or footage of them to show other people. And because, you know, footprints, you can get all the footprints in the world. It it, it it could be very persuasive to some scientists, but... I, I think what people expect is that there's really some animals out there, you should be able to get them on camera. And they—they they, most people don't realize how difficult that is. Thermal technology, though, is a game changer in that regard, and it's cheap enough now that a lot more people can have access to it. Anyway,
4: that's my take very briefly, price drops in technology. The more people with suitable technology, the better, because you know there's only uh, a handful of bigfooters that are really out in the woods trying to do anything, really, in my opinion. a handful, a very small handful. the rest of them are on internet trying to end the world, as far as I can tell, with misinformation. Yeah. Um, but uh, but th- th- that those handful of pe- but those handful of people, like the odds are against them. But when I mean, I'll, I'll venture a guess and say almost everybody here has a smartphone in your pocket. The, the odds are way in your favor than, than Bigfooters getting footage. And so that's it. The more people with decent technology, um, the because lightning will strike again, Then there will be another Patterson-Gimlin film at, at some point. And the more people with the opportunity to film it, the higher the chances. So that's, that's the important part.
1: Thanks,
4: thanks, Layla. Hey guys, here's
2: a philosophical question. So because our our race hasn't had the best track record at preserving intelligent species like whales or the Fort Knox story you mentioned earlier, are you ever conflicted about finding Bigfoot? In other words, does it ever cross your mind like, geez, I hope I don't find Bigfoot with this camera
4: crew here because I don't want anybody else to know that this family unit is here and maybe we will ruin their society? Um, not uh, for me personally, no, because i'm I'm trying to learn about them. I'm not trying to prove the species is real because at the end of the day, uh, proof will only come in the form of a dead one. And I'm not with, and you know, it's it's naive to think otherwise, DNA will not cut it. Um, nothing else will matter. If we get good DNA results, what that'll do is get more people out there with guns and try to bring in a specimen. Um, There are only two species um, so far that don't have a type specimen or a holotype, and humans are one of them, although it's arguably uh, Linnaeus, the guy who invented the taxonomic system. And there's also a species of monkey um, that was deemed too, from what I understand, I could be incorrect, maybe there's another one now, I've read something, but there's a species of monkey that was deemed too rare to even sacrifice one. Sasquatches aren't that. I don't think there's any reason to think that they're endangered at this point. But um, but even DNA results will just push the ball further down the court, but it won't score a touchdown. Um, so I am personally not trying to prove they're real. I can't, because I'm not a gun guy. Um, I'm, you know, I have a couple firearms, but I'm not a gun guy, and I know that because I know gun guys. I know several of my friends are gun guys, and that's not me, you know? They're just too into it. It's kind of, you know, just like I'm too into Bigfoot for them. Um, but, I am trying to do something for them in the long run. I'm trying to educate. I was a fifth grade teacher before I was on the show, and really what I am now is a single subject teacher. My subject is Bigfoot. Because if we look at all the atrocities that our species has uh, has, uh, has, uh, has accomplished, if you want, if that's the right word for it, um, all the atrocities that we have committed, that's a better word for it, um, it's, all, it's always born out of ignorance. And, you know, when you look at the, the, the Bigfoot movies today, they're all monstrous. You look at the, the Finding Bigfoot thing, like, rawr, and before and after commercials, they're always depicted as such, instead of the quiet, peaceful great apes that they almost certainly are, you know? Um, and, and maybe they're hominins, maybe they're offshoots of human. who knows? Who knows what they actually are taxonomically? But, but the, really, we all kind of accept that, like, they're not really like that. And um, and so if I can do my little part of educating the public before discovery, before academic acceptance, because um, Nagel argued if you read his book that the discovery process is underway. But um, if before academic acceptance, if I can do my little part of educating the public, perhaps they won't be treated so inappropriately after academic acceptance. Um, basically, I'm trying to soften the blow of discovery. So I, I don't, uh, sure, I, I guess there's a way like, well, I don't want the Bigfoots over at this spot to be, figured out that they're there because people could bother them. But you know, it's not going to be any easier to kill one after academic acceptance. Big are do, it, do a really good job taking care of themselves. I think that's clear at this point. Um, I'm not too worried about it, and I just try to approach the species with the same respect that I would approach a brown bear or anything else. Don't bother them. I'm just trying to learn, man. I'm just visiting, passing through. Don't mind me. You know?
1: And I think academic acceptance is not going to protect a species or planet or habitat because a record has shown, based on our atrocities, we we don't, we are, especially, increasingly, increasingly, a consumer capitalistic society, it it goes beyond anything, and it's it's appalling, but it's it's a fact of of, of what we are, It's, it's what we have prioritized, sadly.
3: I'll, I'll make it. There's three different points I want to make on, on this issue. I don't think academic acceptance is going to put them in any more danger than they would be now. There's plenty of people out there now who believe that these things are real or could be real. And there really isn't that many people out there. Hardly. I mean, I think the only people, you know, let's say very few, you know, people who are, Actively wanting to go out and hunt down and shoot one at present. So the fact that scientists now say that would suddenly say, oh, yeah, we think they're real, that number is not suddenly going to go up. And I think that's because it's not people's immediate inclination to want to go out and kill something like that. Unless somebody puts up a bounty and saying, okay, we'll pay you a million dollars for a big, you know, a Bigfoot body. I mean, cause obviously, there's legal issues with that, so nobody's going to offer that kind of reward uh, for for people to go out and kill one. And I, I just you, I, I just don't think, I think people have would naturally, if they see these things, they know what they're like. They know that usually they're running, running away and retreating. People, I think most people would have a protective attitude toward them. So yeah, there might be some people who have a bad attitude toward them but there'd have to be a whole lot of them, and they'd have to be very organized, and they'd have to be very well-funded, and it'd it'd take an army to do it, because, I mean, you compare it to whales, whales are easy to get compared to these things. I mean, a whale, you can see them spout with the thing from a distance, and you can get over them, and they have to come up, I mean, they're, you know, whales are easy to spot, easy to catch, compared to these things. These things are all about getting away, you know, and and they're at night, and they can move away from you faster, so, you know, and and, uh, if if it's almost impossible to get them on camera, it isn't any easier to shoot one, because you still have to see it uh, to do either of those things. Uh, So, Okay, so those, those were two points about it. Oh yeah, okay, and the other example, the Patterson footage. Patterson footage, lots of people saw that, lots of people think that's real, everybody knows, it doesn't take too long to find out exactly where that thing was seen, not just Bluff Creek, but the part of Bluff Creek, and there was never people going up there trying to hunt that. So, And here's something, a visual representation that blew people's minds. So scientists coming out and saying, "Yeah, we think Bigfoots are real," or "Yeah, here's a dead body." Uh, th- for that to somehow then jump to all of a sudden there being a big organized push to kill another one uh, somewhere else where they're known to be, I I I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, and it- again, it hasn't happened in the past. Everybody knows where the Patterson footage is from. You you didn't have you know a mercenary posse up there looking looking for that one.
2: Appreciate you guys. Thank I you so much.
4: Appreciate you. Thank you. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages.
2: Hello, Mike Mann from Pennsylvania. It's not a question. It's just more of a thank you. Thank you for the show. You guys, the show almost quit with the whole horse incident on the very first season. You guys almost ran out of the show. I thank you for not doing that. There was no good show on TV that did any of that stuff. Monster Quest ended some time ago. Animal X, long before that. I had nothing good going on. And I was in my basement, and all of a sudden, I see I see the show of Finding Bigfoot, and I, my mouth was stunned. My jaw was on the ground. I'm amazed that this new show was coming on. and Ever since then, I've been following it. Love you guys so much and all that. New New York Comic Con twice and everything else like that. Me and my girlfriend drove 10 hours here from eastern Pennsylvania just so that we could be here today because I knew you guys were all going to be here today. And just from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so much. And, And the only last thing I have to say is we'd like to hear my new updated call that I've been working on.
3: Stay away from that microphone when you do that.
1: Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.
4: Well, I don't know if I can top
3: that. But <laughs> I'm Carter Reeves. I'm out of Southern Illinois, right out of St. Louis. Um, First off, great seeing you guys in person.
2: Um, My question for each of you is, other than Bigfoot, has there been
4: any other cryptid that has piqued your interest? And if so, uh, which one was your favorite? I I don't think a lot of the cryptids are real at all, but I think a couple of them are. And one of the criteria is that you have to kind of look at the history of them. Like Sasquatches, you can go back before written history and find record of them. So if you look at that sort of thing here in North America, or really throughout the world, there's a few that stand out, and I think amongst them are like the lake monsters and river serpent sort of things, um, because you can find indigenous stories in North America and other places in the world where these things are part of the, uh, the natural fauna, so to speak, like as far as the indigenous people go. If you want to know what lives in the woods, talk to a native person, you know. Right, um, and they say they're here and I've spoken to a lot of witnesses that say that they've seen them um, not only of indigenous cultures but also the, the, like the more like dominant European culture I guess that we're all swimming in um, I think those things are very very likely real um, and what they are I don't know some, probably some giant eel or something um, and I'm kind of basing that on that DNA study from Loch Ness that was done by a New Zealand scientist um, but if I kind of thought that before too though um, but this isn't about what I think but I think that the that is probably my favorite because I think it has the highest probability of being real outside of the hairy hominoids. Like for rainpandax, they're real, confident of that. You know, yeren, yowies, and all that sort of stuff. Um, Amistis, or yetis, all that stuff. But outside of the hairy hominoid realm, um, I would say that the highest percentage chance is are
3: these lake dash river serpent things. So. Have, my answer would have been, yeah, the, the, the river snake that, that some of the Indians call the, the kind of what are probably some kind of an eel species that breeds out in the ocean and then follows salmon up in rivers and ends up in lakes like Loch Ness. Up, you know of course, when there's salmon that come in from the ocean and go from the streams into Loch Ness and then they you know they go up into the tributary streams that feed into Loch Ness. And so I think these are just some kind of an eel species that goes up there and gets very, very, very large. But the other one, the only other one in the U.S. that just kind of, and I remember it was completely, it was, uh, we first heard about that in 1992, I was a a speaker at uh, the conference for the International Society of Cryptozoology, which was a very formal, respected thing, funded by uh, uh, the, I forget what the name of this institute was, that was MIT, an MIT guy uh, who did it and Richard Greenwald was the head of it. So they had a conference there, and they were giving presentations uh, about Loch Ness and about different cryptozoology things. Again, these are total scientists doing this. And I was the guy came to come to talk about Bigfoot stuff. Uh, and I was in law school at the time, it was in 92. Uh, and I came and talked about what I was doing in Ohio and some recordings that I had gotten, and I was talking about wood knocking and things like that. And after the conference, a guy came up to, excuse me, it was a young woman initially, and she said she knew a park ranger down in the part of southern New Jersey who had him and his partner saw something cross the road in this kind of brine swampy area, uh, and uh, they said it wasn't a Bigfoot. And she said, you've gotta talk to this guy, and she was kind of describing this, and I'm like, huh? I've never heard of anything like this. So we got a hold of this ranger, I and my wife went down and we met this guy, and he had, we talked to the two rangers who saw this thing cross the road, and they did a very detailed drawing of it. I mean, it was right in their headlights, maybe 40 feet ahead of the car. And I was looking at this drawing, and I was like, what the hell is that? And it was something that would look, it would, I mean, I guess the best way to describe it is, the top part of it would look like the head of a seal, From the ocean and then it had what almost looked like flippers on its side but then it had just two hind legs almost kind of like a deer and it was like what so it's got these two legs and it's got this body and it's got these two kind of flipper things and it had come out of a brine swamp and walked across the road uh, and with this kind of pointy head, like kind of like a seal or a deal, and he was walking back into a different brine swamp. And so I sent the drawing to uh, Lauren Coleman, who's got the cryptozoology museum up in Portland, Maine. And immediately he sends me back a drawing from a very old drawing from Australia of a crypto, cryptid there called a bunyip. And I looked at that and just felt I was just blown away. I'm like, oh my God, that's the same thing. It looks. It, it was just looking, at, and, and these two rangers were really credible. And this, these things called the bunya, like in Australia, you would have made people talk about the bunya, uh, but they just see these same kind of things in brine swamps, which are areas where you have kind of a swampy river area uh, where, you know, ocean water comes up, and so part of it's brackish water and, and part of it's swamp. And uh, and it, I started thinking, then okay, this would make sense because you know what, dolphins and whales are basically the descendants of what had been land animals. I mean, I don't know a lot of people know that the whales and dolphins are not fish; uh, they are mammals, and they were walking around on the land at one point, and they kind of looked like seals, seals with four legs. They would walk around on land, and eventually adapted to be more and more aquatic, and then they became dolphins and whales. Um, so I was, from these drawings, I'm like, this looks like, almost like an intermediary, because the thing that dolphins whales descended from was a swamp animal. And it's, this has got like the head part of that same thing, but then it's got kind of two back legs where, it's, it doesn't have four legs, it's got back legs where it can stand up and like walk from one swamp up onto the land and then into another swamp, and then it's got kind of like flippers. And then I looked at some of the old drawings for the Jersey Devil, and the old drawings for the Jersey Devil show something that's like a deer or a horse head, and it's got these kind of things like wings, and it's got two hind legs with like hooves. And I'm like, wow. Those three things, those, and, 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 but this is not something to be all across the United States. These would be very specific kind of brackish water environments that obviously there's enough of that in Australia, and you have uniquely some of that in, in the southern part of New Jersey. Uh, and uh, so I think that's kind of another cryptid, but probably the most, if it exists, the, it's the most rare one uh, in in certainly in North America uh, that would be bigger than a bread box.
4: Thank you very much, and we have one last question, I guess, for the session. I'm Dorothy
3: Information, Kentucky, and I'm just curious, like, what was your aha moment? Thought-
4: did make that decision, honestly, <laughs> who in the world would choose this, right? Uh, it's not an easy thing to do to make a living on, of course, And uh, but but I, I guess it was, I knew that I was on to something, because I was in college, um, I, I, I've always been a weird guy. Okay, I've always been interested in ex- eccentric things and whatever else growing up in the 1970s. But when I was in college, I stumbled across a couple different books that were compilations of scientific journal articles written about Sasquatches. Um, and those articles are written by not only journalists and laymen, um, because that's mostly who's doing the work, but also anthropologists, uh, Dr. Krantz and whatever else. And, and like, and, and once I started reading these, the actual evidence, I, comp- I, I after a while, it became very difficult to explain away Um, very difficult to explain away. Like, how could it be that every indigenous group in North America, without exception, has stories of these sort of things in their oral tradition? The ones in Florida, the ones in British Columbia, they weren't talking, they weren't trading. At least I think that's a strong argument. Maybe they were. I don't think they were, though. Um, but uh, I don't think the trade routes went that far. But yet there was the same physical description with the same behaviors, the same characteristics. And so it was the evidence, uh, the the, foot, the footprint evidence, the, 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 the that the differences between a Sasquatch footprint and, or a foot and, a, and, a, and a human foot inferred by their footprints happens to be accidentally happens to be exactly the necessary biomechanical redesign of the foot to accommodate a mass of that size? And you just go down the list, there's evidence and evidence and evidence and evidence. And I found it overwhelming, extraordinarily compelling. And I also was an amateur astronomer, and that's important, because amateur astronomers make a significant contribution to professional astronomers every year. Amateur astronomers are the ones that discover the vast majority of new comets, for example, or even new asteroids, because professionals have to buy for grant money and telescope time, and they have a specific agenda, because that's what they get paid for, and the It's people like me, the amateurs that can go dick around with a telescope at night, basically, you know? Um, And we are the ones that stumble upon things. And I saw that Sasquatches, since the academics had not picked up the baton yet for the most part, this is a field that amateurs like myself can make a significant contribution to and that's when I decided holy crap not only are these things most likely real besides being cool and eccentric and wacky and all that stuff that I was and um, but I might be able to contribute something important and I thought that was cool so that and that was back in 94 93, 94 somewhere in there and that's kind of what got me this whole train. And after that it's just one divine accident after another. Just stumbling blindly into the dark and scrambling up the metaphoric slopes and you know meeting the right people and just just falling into one fortuitous snake pit after another and crawling out you know and then lo and behold i am a- accidentally find myself on stage in front of you lovely people talking about this yeah my life has been one amazing accident yeah
3: the f- two big aha things for me i was still at UCLA and uh, found out I was interested since I was a kid since seeing the documentaries in the 70s The Legend of Boggy Creek and Mysterious Monsters saw it as a double feature I'm sure there's some people in here that got their start too The Legend of Boggy Creek let's see those hands if that was the first thing that got you interested yeah you're not youngsters are you so uh um, so that, that got me interested, and then it was like ten years later that uh, uh, that I met some people by chance in L.A. who had said who, a guy who knew some people who had seen one up in the Ventura County Mountains, which is just north of L.A. And I was just all over it. I'm like, if there's even a little possibility that there's some up in the Ventura County Mountains, I'm all over it. So I found somebody who would go backpacking up there, in me, and Ventura County Mountains, like you can most of it, you can only backpack into. There are no roads. We went back up there and found tracks, and it was the first time I heard wood knocks, and nobody had ever talked about, I had never heard anybody talk about specifically wood knocks, and I, was, I didn't know what, we didn't know what the sound was. We heard something making the sound of knocks, and then something up the canyon answering it. Um, but finding the track up there was, fresh track was another, like, that just totally hooked me. And then the thing that just changed everything was, Pursuing reports in Ohio, then finally having one standing right in front of me, until, you know, at nighttime, growling at me until I walked away from, walked away from it. That's when I started up the BFRO after that. And that was right when the internet was new, and uh, created a website, and then the people who were on, the first the first group on the internet, this was, remember, years before Facebook, years before MySpace or anything like that, there was only what was called a list server, back then, which was a, a, a thing where you, if you sent an email, you could subscribe to this, and there was a particular email address, and if you if you were on this list, and you sent a message to that email address, then it would bounce back to everybody else who had subscribed. And so, all the people who were Bigfooters who were getting online were hearing about this listserv. So from that listserv, we were bringing people into the BFRO. And and that's how it grew. But yeah, that face-to-face, it was after that, it lifted a huge burden off me because even if you find tracks and you hear them and you talk to all sorts of witnesses, you're still gonna have some, a little bit of doubt that this could all be real until you actually see one. And then once you have an encounter, then it's just like, you never have to like, have that like, maybe they're not really real. And maybe it's all maybe uh, you know maybe you could you know think of all these other explanations for it because a lot of things just don't kind of make sense. After you pursue them for a while, then it all makes sense. It makes sense why nobody's found bodies of them. It makes sense why people don't have clear photographs of them. Why this has all these things that so many people expect because all these things that would happen with other animals. They, there's lots of trail cam photos of other animals. There's lots of regular photographs of other animals. They'll find roadkill, etc., etc. And so there's all these assumptions made that all of this stuff would apply to Bigfoots too. Well, if you pursue them for years in the places where they live, you understand why those things don't apply. And uh, so that combined with face-to-face, I was just like kind of all in and everything else kind of happened from that.
1: I, I have to say, I love what you were saying, I'm dead I'm, uh, I love what you were saying about citizen Science Clips, and there's a pushback for that, and that's something they that have on the internet, and uh, that's, a, that's a great revelation, I wanted to uh, touch on that, but my aha moment, of course, comes with these guys, it's a big book for my where mine comes with words beyond what my belief system is. When we filmed up in Alaska, I had done field work there prior, before the show, and I knew these uh, elders and tribal members. And meeting one explained to me, um, hearing again and again, Cliff, I know you speak of how it's a part of their culture and their lore, and for me, what that speaks to is, it's also often a part of indigenous people's story, is that it is something that is beyond the physical realm, hence the, the beyond statement. For me, that explains why we don't get a holotype, and why we can't find a body. Why they can be seen by um, members of it running out in the distance. You get a glimpse of it running through the forest, where it's a sasquatch or a bookworm, what they're calling it. Then shape shifts into an elf that turns into a crow and flies off. And, and I remember uh, Chris Matt, and Bobo saying to me, "Well, that's not real scientific <laughs> for now. And me having that belief system, well, I'm somebody who believes in a higher power. I call it a soul, call it spirit, what you will. I believe that when my time comes, my body's going to return to the earth, but my my spirit's going somewhere else. I don't know where that is. And when an elder turned to me and said, look, if you you look at a totem, there's bear, wolf, raven, and these are animals just like we are. We have a physical and spiritual body that's lost in this plane. Our body dies. It goes back to the earth. Spirit goes somewhere else, but big, foot, Wendigo, sasquatch when you go fast, box, whatever you want to call it, can come and go at will, you're never going to touch it. That was my aha uh-huh moment, that's what resonated with me. I don't know what it is. That's a potential explanation, but again, zero's a data point, I'm still searching, and I, and I love doing it with these three guys, Bobo included. <laughs>
0: All right, we've got one more favor to ask of you before we wrap up. So obviously three of the four are here, right? Bobo is going to hear this. And so maybe at the count of three, if we could all say at the top of our lungs, we miss you, Bobo. Think we could do that? Because he's going to hear this podcast. So one, two, three. We miss
2: you,
4: Bobo. Thank you guys so much. Thank you very much for participating in a Bigfoot and Beyond. Keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes.